0: Tears are really important in leaders. Leaders who can't cry can't be trusted.
1: Wow.
2: Whoa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my plaid shirt-wearing co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. We are also joined today by Jim Dethmer, a sought-after coach and speaker. Jim is a founding partner of the Conscious Leadership Group, and he's also the co-author of the book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, A New Paradigm for Sustainable Success, which has played a big role in my and our lives. Jim, welcome to the show. Great to
0: be here. Really fun to be with both of you.
2: On today's episode, we're going to talk about conscious leadership, obviously, both on the individual and hopefully the systemic level. But before we unpack that, we like to do a check-in round.
1: Yeah, we're going to do a check-in round with us and Jim to get present, as we always do. And our check-in question for today is, what is a skill you have that is currently underutilized in your work or life? And we'll go Aaron first, then me, then Jim.
2: Nice. Nice. I was actually recently reminded about this by my son who has become obsessed with sketching and drawing around the house. And I remember that I used to do a ton of that. I love to sketch. I love to draw. I have done almost none of it in the last many, you know, really decade or two. So it might be a return to art moment for me. I'm not sure what the usefulness is, but it feels underutilized.
1: Nice. I have talked many times on this show about my study and love of the tarot, and I haven't quite figured out how to make it a part of my work or my life, except for for myself. Even though it's so fun, and I learn so much, and so does everyone else <laughs> from the practice. So, uh, so yeah, I would say that is an underutilized skill at the moment. Jim, it what did about make you? An
2: appearance at the last retreat, which was fun.
1: I would say more than an appearance, but yeah.
2: brief appearance.
0: (laughs) Well, the first thing that came into my mind is I'm currently underutilizing my skill at teaching people how to play pickleball. So (laughs) (laughs) I got interested in pickleball years ago. I've become passionate about it. And (laughs) I'm a really good teacher of teaching people the basics. Um, And it's underutilized because I'm on the injured reserve list right now, rehabbing a a (laughs) knee, and it's the dead of winter, and there's not much football available to me outdoors right now in northern Michigan, but it will come back into play shortly. And I think it really does mask another skill that I have, which is I love to break down concepts and teach them to people in a way that they can get them and really embody them. What I like about pickleball, it's an embodied practice. You know, it's where your weight distribution is, how your balance is, where your racket paddle is. And I love to teach people things that they actually can embody.
1: Are you a dinker or a banger?
0: <laughs> ah, that's a go. Okay, here we go. Uh, the soft game is my strength.
1: Very nice. I That doesn't surprise me. I'm a pretty uh, avid player myself. That's what I was just going to say. If you were closer, I would be delighted to have some coaching. Here in North Carolina, we play all year round, which is pretty pretty nice. So today's topic is conscious leadership. And I'd love to start by asking you just a bit more about your background, Jim. So how did you get started on the path of thinking about consciousness and leadership and how those concepts connect? Why did you feel a need to do this work? And why do you still feel drawn to it, assuming you do? <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, at times I like to do it instead of play pickleball, but yeah. <laughs> I still feel deeply drawn to it. Here's the reason I was and am drawn to it. Here are the reasons. First, um, as a little kid, I had an ache, like in the center of my chest. Probably if I had been taken to somebody, I might have been like subclinically depressed. Outwardly, I was, you know, pretty functional, meaningfully successful. But inwardly, I never had a sense of peace. And that drove me to look for how to take away the ache in the center of my chest. What does it look like to have peace or to be happy or to not feel this existential angst or pain? And that was with me up through my mid-40s. I'm 68 now. It was with me in a meaningful way up through my mid-40s. The good news about that is it turned me into a seeker and I've spent decades looking for the best technologies, if you will, that can give me and others a sense of well-being. So that's number one. Number two, I've always led. So whether it was in athletics or in organized businesses or whatever, I've led. So I've been fascinated by leadership. What does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to be a good leader? What's the difference? So that subject has been of deep interest to me and still is. So And lastly, I'm passionate about relationships, what makes great relationships, my relationship with my wife, Debbie, or our six kids, or now we have eight grandkids, or my friends, or my business partners. And the work that we do in the world at the Conscious Leadership Group is not just about individual consciousness. Really, the book is about how to have relationships where we practice consciousness in the day-to-day grist of life. You know, I say all the time, it's one thing to sit on your cushion and meditate or do your gratitude journal or have a yoga practice, all of which are wonderful. It's another thing to walk into the office or walk home and enter into a relationship and still be able to practice. So I've always been a seeker trying to get rid of the ache. (laughs) I've always been a leader And I've always been interested in relationships. So that to say, Rodney, the reason I've been drawn to this is to answer all of my own questions. And then just the way I'm wired, when I find good stuff, I want to tell it to other people. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's kind of been my whole life, and it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. I'm still finding new, wonderful things about consciousness, about relationships, and about leadership, and I love to offer it to others.
2: Well, perhaps we should start with some of the foundational things about it. So when you talk about consciousness and conscious leadership, that sounds fantastic, but what does it actually mean in practice? And then on the flip side, maybe what does it mean to be unconscious?
0: Hmm. Okay, great. So we could have an esoteric and meaningful conversation about consciousness, but I like to keep it fairly simple. You know, if if you're walking down the street and somebody runs up to you and says, Rodney's is over there and she's unconscious.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm concerned. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, what that would mean is she has become unresponsive. That's that's the way we normally, in a very practical sense, she is currently unresponsive.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's a pretty good definition of what it means to be unconscious. I'm unresponsive. So to be conscious is to be responsive. Now, if we double-click on those words a little bit... We say that to be conscious is to actually be here now. And most of us aren't here now. I like one author <laughs> who says, most of us aren't here now. And we're not here now enough to know that we're not here now. You know, right. we're just, we're yeah. asleep. So first, can I be here now? Which is a developable, practicable skill. But not only can I be here now, can I be here now in a non-triggered, non-reactive way? so that I can be responsive to this creative moment. So consciousness is being here now in a non-triggered, non-reactive way, able to respond to this creative improvisational moment. I think that's a pretty good definition. We could unpack that like crazy. And we define leadership as uh, someone who is willing to take responsibility, radical responsibility for the influence they're having in the world. Mm -hmm. With that definition, you know, many of us are leaders, but not many of us are taking radical responsibility for the influence, the impact we're having. Mm -hmm. So a conscious leader is somebody who's here now in a non-triggered, non-reactive way, able to respond improvisationally to this creative moment while taking radical responsibility for their influence.
1: I love that definition of leadership. That's very, very cool. I am curious. I, I, I'm i sure we will get to more unpacking of all of the consciousness. <laughs> and so much of what we see around us does look like unconscious leadership as the norm. Hmm. Do, do you sense that too, Jim? And And if so, why is it easier to default to unconscious leadership? Yeah. Beautiful.
0: Yes, I think it is the norm. In fact, I think most people are walking around on the planet pretty unconscious. Now, in my world, that's not a bad thing or a wrong thing. It's actually kind of a natural, normal state. Mm. Again, if consciousness is to be here now, Most people aren't. They're either living in the past in memories or regrets or guilt or nostalgia, or they're living in the future with anxiety, worry, planning, so on and so forth. For really good reason, to actually be here now is to face, feel, and deal with what's here now. (laughs) And that is, in many cases, until you develop some practices, that can be quite uncomfortable. Second, unconscious, the way the way we say it is, I simply have gone out of presence. I've gotten hooked in my reactivity. And that's natural and normal because most of the time, I'm experiencing myself in a threatened state. And again, we can talk about what that means. But most people live most of the time in a mild to moderate threatened state. Even if there's no stimuli other than their current thought stream, their thought stream is putting them into a threatened state. Well, once I'm in a threatened state, now I'm just reactive. And all that matters to me is survival usually, by the way, the survival of my identity or my ego. So now I just get trapped in my habitual patterns of trying to survive while I'm experiencing myself in a threatened state. So since most people experience threat, most people are triggered and reactive and simply in you know, their normal patterns of reactivity. Again, we don't make that a bad thing. That's natural and normal. The process, the work is to bring some self-awareness to that so that in any moment I can say, wow, am I conscious or unconscious right now? Am I triggered and reactive or am I available and responsive? You know, You know, we use that simple little illustration. Am I above the line or below the line? Mm -hmm. Real simple. Am I in a state of trust or a state of fear? That ability to ask myself that question and to have enough practice and self-awareness to answer it is the beginning of starting to wake up. So, yeah, I think most people are unconscious leaders. And by the way, they're doing that because it's the best they know how. It's the best thing they can think of right now. And some unconscious leaders, you know, do meaningful and powerful things in the world. The subtitle of our book's important. We don't think it's really sustainable, but for short bursts, which can include years, you can hit your numbers. You okay. can outdo the competition. That's you right. can, you know, whatever it is. You can make a ton of money. You can have meaningful impact. The problem is it's not sustainable because leading unconsciously is exhausting to the individual and it tends to be depleting to relationships and unsustainable in the culture.
1: And just to dig a little further into that, maybe if there are people out there who are not familiar with the above and below the line heuristic, Could you talk a little bit about what some of the common reactive patterns are that you see over and over again?
0: Sure. Yeah. So again, when we're below the line, we're just in a threatened state and we're reactive. So this book that we wrote, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, by the way, who writes a book about 15 things? (laughs) We got got a little bit of advice about that, you know, like, you know. Five dysfunctions, <laughs> seven habits. You know, you're kind of stretching it. Fifteen. Who can keep track of that? And the reason was, in fairness, we didn't ever think we'd write another book, and we haven't. And we thought we just have to say everything we Let's know about the subject. Let's get it out.
3: Subject. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at the fifteen, they just map to fifteen different ways that we go below the line in human relationships at work, at home. In our volunteer organizations. So if you said to me, okay, great. So if I'm not familiar with the heuristic, what does it look like to be below the line? Well, we'll just do a few. Commitment number one says that when I'm below the line, I'm blaming and complaining. Mm-hmm. Now I could be blaming and complaining out loud. I could be doing it in my mind. I could be blaming and complaining about myself. I could be blaming you. I could be blaming them. When I'm below the line, I'm blaming and complaining. When I'm above the line, I'm taking responsibility. So that maps the first one. Mm -hmm. The second commitment says that when I'm below the line, I am committed to proving I'm right. (laughs) Needing to be right. Egos need to be right for good reason. They don't think they survive unless they're right. Mm
3: -hmm. When
0: I'm above the line, I'm curious. I'm in a state of wonder. Learning is the highest priority. Then when you go to commitment three, when I'm below the line, I'm repressing and suppressing my feeling states, and I don't want you to feel your feelings. When I'm above the line, I'm becoming masterful at emotional intelligence. I've learned how to be with my emotions in a way that is life-giving, and I know how to be with you, with your emotions, so that we create powerful connections and live in our creative juice.
2: The Irishman in me wrestles with that one a lot. Yeah,
0: I hear (laughs) you. So that's the way those 15 commitments map. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll just do one more. Commitment number four, when I'm below the line, I withhold, I don't reveal myself. In the deepest, most dysfunctional way, I don't tell the truth. But it's not just that, it's that I... Think thoughts. I have wants and desires. I have opinions, perspectives, beliefs, and I don't tell you about them. This is a major dysfunction in teams. It greatly slows down decision making. When I'm above the line, I reveal. I'm authentic. I tell you what I'm thinking, what I want, what I believe. I reveal myself to you. So when I'm below the line, I conceal. When I'm above the line, I reveal and then you just keep going along and most people when we talk about these things they go okay oh, yeah, i get it that's not hard i can tell when i'm blaming and complaining sure. i can tell when i'm really in a fight with my significant other and i don't give a rat's ass about resolving it i just want to be right yeah. sure <laughs> i know when fear comes up and i won't feel it you know i just drink another glass of wine or you know zone out in netflix i'm unwilling to feel my feelings and I know when I'm withholding and not telling the truth, these things are actually quite self-evident because it's just the human condition. Mm-hmm. Now, whether we're willing to really see ourselves and be with ourselves and each other when we're in triggered and reactive states, that's a different question, but it, this is not real mysterious. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
2: No, it's mm-hmm. not. I, I want to get into the varsity stuff here, I, desperately. But before we do, I think there's one more concept that it might be interesting to have you level set, which is the drama triangle. So can, okay. you, can you briefly explain how that kind of connects to this above and below the line stuff? And then we'll, we'll jump in. Yeah, beautiful.
0: When we're below the line, relationships tend to show up in a repeating pattern. And it was actually, I think, Stephen Cartman who first came up with this, the psychologist, as he watched relationships over and over again. And when, again, when we're below the line, we're in a triggered reactive place, we're actually in the grip of a threatened, fearful state. Well, relationships looks the same. And he identified these three bases that people relate from when they're below the line. So there are all three flavors of victim consciousness. There are three flavors of victim consciousness. So the first base is the real victim. And the real victim is whining. They believe that they're at the effect of people, circumstances, and conditions. The big idea here is when I'm on the victim base, I believe that life is happening to me. The cause of my experience is outside of me. So I'm disempowered and I am in that whether overtly or covertly. Why is this happening to me? This sucks, you know, it's 20 below zero again. My life sucks, you know, my kid got bad grades. You know, life is happening to me. That's mm-hmm. that's the first base. The second base is called the villain. And the villain is trying to figure out whose fault it is, who screwed it up. So their primary objective is to blame somebody. And they can blame themselves. They can blame the other person. And they can blame the collective, you know, who they are, who screwed it up for all of Mm -hmm. us. So when I'm in villain, I'm trying to figure out whose fault it is and who needs to be blamed. And then the last base is hero. And hero is the one that is the most nuanced. I think other versions of this have called the hero the rescuer Mm -hmm. or the reliever. And I actually Mm -hmm. like reliever a lot because when I'm on hero, I'm seeking temporary relief. That's the key. I'm not trying to resolve the core issue. I just want to feel better now and I want you to feel better now. So I'm unwilling to be with healthy conflict. I'd rather just do something to give me temporary relief. So for example, if I come home from work and I'm exhausted, rather than face, feel, and deal with how I'm creating work and my life at work and my relationships at work such that I'm always exhausted, again, I'd rather just fill in the blank you know, Mm -hmm. smoke a joint, or watch TV, or even go for a run. We can hero ourselves by doing things that are more healthy. But I'm running because I don't want to face feel and deal with the dislocation I feel at work with my colleagues. And the fact that I'm exhausting and burning myself out. So heroes want temporary relief. So you can do this with your children, you know, if your children is struggling, uh, uh, something going on at school, and they you view them as a victim at the effect of school or the school system or at the effect of some diagnosis that they have, then you hero them by doing their homework for them by Mm -hmm. over functioning. And what you get is temporary relief, But the real issue doesn't get dealt with. So Carpenter said, and our experience is that in the workplace, we go below the line, and then our relationships look like some version of the drama triangle. And by the way, you can do the drama triangle just in your own head. I do it all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, these are are all me. I got them. Yeah, Yeah, I got them all. Exactly. And that's true, Rodney. That's what you experience when you start to become self-aware. You're just moving from base to base to base. Sure and that's okay again that's not a bad thing that is just our survival strategy when we're in a threatened state
1: yeah that does bring me to a question that i i wanted to ask you so you know i think everyone on this on this call has done at least some work around cultivating self-awareness and psychological flexibility whether with clg or in other domains what i wonder is like As a person who wrote the book on it, Jim, how do you help people understand that this work is challenging, that it's going to require mindset shifts and new ways of behaving, and also that without doing our own work, nothing else really matters?
0: (laughs) That's great.
1: Well, okay, let me say a couple things
0: come to me. It it would be as though let's say you decided that you wanted to change your relationship with your physical body, so you know you want to have a different body shape, you want Mm -hmm. to be you know stronger, more flexible. Okay, so if you came and you said, "I have these needs, I want to do something," well, one of the things we'd say is, "That's great. We have technology now that can guarantee that you can transform your relationship with your physical body, and it's going to require you making some choices." Like to put on your workout clothes in the morning, to get on your Peloton, to, you know, start to track uh, what you're eating with an app. And you might say to me, Well, I don't want to do any of that. I (laughs) I just want to have a different body. Well, I'd say the probability of that succeeding is very low. The same would be true if you came and you want a different relationship with your finances. Well, we'd say you got to do these certain behaviors, and then you're gonna have a different relationship with money. Well what I say to people, it's going to be exactly the same when it comes to waking up, to becoming more conscious, to becoming more alive. It's going to be exactly the same if you want to begin to change how you work together as a team. So unless you're willing to put in some time doing some practices and we can be very specific about what those practices are and how much time they're going to take and how frequently you need to do them the probability of change is about 0 now and people get that that's kind of self-evident but here's the next thing i say is the work that we're going to do around again waking up becoming more conscious becoming more present is going to involve some discomfort Mm -hmm. Nobody grows in becoming a conscious leader without becoming uncomfortable. So what I say is in order to do the work you're going to need to do, one of two things has to be true. You either have to have a really big vision that you can't achieve living, leading, and relating the way you've been doing it. In other words, what got you here won't get you there. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And your vision is so compelling that you're willing to get into the gym. You're willing to get into the dojo of practice. Mm -hmm. Or, and this is what's actually true for most people, you got to (laughs) have enough pain. (laughs) (laughs) We say it's, it's like a multiplier. You know, let's say you need 100 points of motivation. You know, we don't care whether it's 100 points of vision and one point of pain or you know, 10 and 10, or somehow you got to get there. For most people, they are pushed by pain until they are pulled by a vision. Mm. There are exceptions to that. But so when I decide to engage a client, whether an individual or a team, one of the things I want to assess with them is how much pain are they in? Mm -hmm. Or how big is the vision that they have that doing work the old way simply can't get them there. And I know you two relate to this. I mean, goodness gracious.
2: It sounds Aaron, very you, similar. You've
0: worked with our team and you know we've talked extensively about this. So you do the same thing because what you're pointing at is, in my judgment, revolutionary technology about how work can be done differently. Well, why am I going to give up the old it might not be working magically, but I, I've got to step into the unknown. I've got to take some risks. Why would I listen to what you're talking about unless I either had a big dream that required a quantum shift in the way we play the game, or I had so much pain I couldn't tolerate it anymore? Isn't that what you find when you bring your transformational technologies to people?
1: Yeah, It is. I mean, we, we routinely say that there are only (laughs) two real levers for starting to shift a system and they are aspiration and pain. (laughs) And, and the, the example you gave around what it takes to cultivate a practice also is very resonant because whether you sell people on moving away from pain or on advancing to something better. And I, I, I'm using the word "sell" there. It's not really the right word, but you engage people, whichever way. Then, when our first day in the gym, there is often a lot of whining, (laughs) and there's (laughs) often a lot of of resistance, and a lot of um, and you know, I think a, a lot of movement around the drama triangle of you know from people who are saying. I want to protect the way that things have been, or yes. I want to protect this person's feelings, or this dynamic. To the people who are like, I'm worried about what could happen, and so what if we just do nothing instead? To uh, on and on and on to the people who are like, you know, we're <laughs> you're doing this wrong, therefore this isn't worth doing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we do see um, probably a lot of what you're describing when we go and ping a system to try to get it unstuck from where it is.
0: Yes, yes. And I don't know whether you experienced this, but I've learned more and more that one of my roles in life is to actually support people to become uncomfortable. Mm. Because, you know, many of us have enough things at our disposal that we can anesthetize ourselves from Mm. the pain. Mm -hmm. whatever that is, you know, there's so much readily available 24 seven, that I don't have to feel the pain. And so one of the things I do with people is, I just work with them on starting to numb themselves less, so they can feel what it's really costing them to not be, let's say, in a truly high performing co creative relationship at work. See, people just have learned to tolerate mediocrity in -hmm. their relationships at work. But if they really sat and got present to that, they would feel pain Mm -hmm. because most of us at some point in our life were in a high performing relationship. It might have been when we were in band, you know, in our freshman year of high school, or it might have been on a sports team, or it might have been, you know, in a creative experience in college. And if we think, oh my God, when I was in that, I felt so engaged, so alive. I felt, I felt like it was magic with the team that I was working with. It didn't mean we didn't have conflict and struggle. We did, mm-hmm. but I was so alive. And when I compare that to the way work feels now, when I go home at night, I have to play hours of video games to numb myself from feeling what I feel if I really faced what's going on at work. So I think we support people by gently inviting them into their discomfort and into their pain so that they find a motivation to experience some sort of transformation.
2: I'm glad that that went back to the group lens because one of the things I really wanted to ask you is we see the way that this work engages on a one-on-one basis with a coach where you talk through a lot of these ideas and there are exercises to go through to kind of play the game with yourself of what am I committed to and can I accept myself and all that. When you engage with a group, how do you think about implementing some of these uh, ideas and techniques and language? Is Is there anything different about it? Does it just end up being a bunch of individual work? How do you think about engaging a group with conscious leadership?
0: Well, the first thing that I think about is for a group to engage, whether by the way, that's Two people in an intimate relationship, or the 10 of us on a team at work. One of the first things we have to do is we have to have what we call a co commitment ritual or exercise. And what that simply looks like is we're going to have enough conversations that we can decide what it is that we're going to be committed to as a group. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm doing it just by myself, the conversation is just with me what am I gonna be committed to? But all let's take for me. example, yeah, exactly all let Let's take for example, candor, which I think <laughs> is really essential in the workplace. Well, it's one thing if I decide in my own self to say, I commit to be revealed and to not conceal. Just that simple commitment. Okay, now if I take a real small team like me and my wife, 25 years ago, we looked at each other and said, I commit to reveal and not conceal. We both said it. And that has been a cornerstone of our relationship. By the way, often terrifying, usually messy. <laughs> never It's never simple and easy. Well, it is actually simple and easy a lot of the time. But it's been a turbulent ride at times to really be revealed and not hide out. Okay, well, the same thing becomes true if the five of us on a team sit down and we go, you know what, we're going to make faster, better, more lasting decisions, sustainable decisions, if we're more authentic with each other. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what that would look like. And then let's co-commit. I commit to reveal and not conceal. Okay, And everybody commits together. So now we've decided metaphorically, we're all going to LAX and <laughs> we're flying to Los Angeles. Not half the team is going to Seattle and half the team's going to San Diego. And sure. You know, a straggler or two didn't get on the plane in New York. We've all agreed that we are going to practice candor. Now, what that means is we're going to commit to go to L.A., But the truth of the matter is no plane flies straight and true. It drifts and autopilot corrects because that's what's going to happen. Once we start practicing as a team, I'm going to fall off the horse. I'm not going to practice candor. That's okay. Mm -hmm. I just get back on the horse. I recommit. So the first thing we do with teams is we get them to get aligned in their commitments, co-created commitments. That's essential in our mind. And then we give them tools. So for example, on candor, one of the simple tools that we give teams is to distinguish fact from story. Mm -hmm. What are the facts? Unarguable, indisputable. And then what are the stories that I make up about the facts? We've learned that candor becomes much easier if we differentiate fact from story. So most people, when they make that differentiation and then they stipulate to the facts and then they create an environment where my opinions, my judgments, my beliefs, those are all stories, can be brought forward, now we create this energy of candor that really allows us to be high performing. So for each of these commitments in a team, we have very, very specific practices that we do to help groups learn to play this game.
1: I love that you brought candor as one of the specific commitments, I often joke that if people would just have direct conversations at work, I'd be out of a job. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) Because it's like bureaucracy is nothing more than the organizational manifestation of mistrust.
3: And so I'm just
1: like, if people just would talk openly about the ways in which, you know, they have needs or trust has been broken or commitments have been Not upheld, etc., there wouldn't really be a need to undo a century of bureaucracy in all likelihood. (laughs) Um, I am curious. So so that one like really lands. And it's funny actually, because even at the ready, I'll, I think because we're a group of org designers, I'll sometimes get in conversations with people who will sort of come to me for advice about a specific systemic, like, well, should we try this experiment or should I bring this agreement or should we, you know, run this piece of governance? And I'm like, are you just avoiding telling this person you're mad? And it's like, yeah, that's, that is actually what's going on here. I'm like, cool. We don't need to govern that. You just need to go
3: have, Quick chat.
1: Um, It's just, it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing. I I guess on that one, I'd like to ask about a couple of other commitments. But on that one, why do you think that is so hard at work? It does seem to me that it gets us in all manner of trouble and causes so much organizational debt that could be easily cut through by some candor.
0: Okay. Well, at the highest level, there are two reasons we are not candid. Mm. The first is, I believe that if I was authentic and revealed, you wouldn't like me, love me, value me, you would reject me, I wouldn't be safe and secure, we would have conflict. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: That's pretty obvious, right? So we say candor, if you have a thought three or more times, you reveal it. Well, goodness Mm. gracious, in the workplace, I have lots of thoughts three or more times. Now, am I willing to reveal it? Sure. Like, that's a dumb idea. That's a bad product. That strategy won't work. You're taking too much airtime. You don't fully appreciate who I am. Thoughts like that just go through. Now, if you think, why do I withhold? Well, I withhold because I think if I said it, fill in the blank. You wouldn't like Mm -hmm. me, value me, respect me, want me, there would be conflict. The second reason we're not authentic and we don't reveal is, and this is a real one, we're trying to control other people's experience.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, what that looks like is we don't want them to be hurt. We don't want them to be upset. But if you get behind that, what we're, and this is pretty direct, what we're really saying is, first of all, I think I'm responsible for your feelings, which is a big thing to explore. And second, it is partially that I don't want you to be upset, but it's also, I don't want to have to live with the relationship once you get upset. Right. Yeah. There's a selfishness
2: underneath the empathy.
0: Don't you think? So it doesn't mean the empathy is unreal or not genuine. It is, but I think those are the reasons people don't reveal. And again, in, in like my relationship with Debbie, we are in a deeply committed, loving, I mean, we have a wildly cool relationship. But almost always there's an edge in my revealing to her, almost always, that if I go up to that edge and I think, okay, take a breath, I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna reveal something, still to this day, fear comes up. Mm. Oh, my gosh, is she going to get upset? Are we going to have conflict? Is she going to reject me? Now, I don't any longer fear about ultimate rejection. But is she just going to, you know, diminish me? Is she not going to see me hear me? And I say that because I don't care how committed you are to candor. There's always going to be an edge that you can get up to where you're going to get scared. I imagine you two have a great working relationship, but I'll bet you if we just started poking around, I could say, is there anything at all you've never revealed to the other person? Is there anything that if you were to reveal it, you'd be afraid that they would judge you, criticize you? Is there anything, is there any conflict you're avoiding? Almost always you can find it because life isn't static, it's dynamic. It's evolving every day. So when Deb and I do our check-ins every morning, that new morning is fresh. There was something that occurred yesterday that's a new, evolving version of me that puts me at the candor edge. Mm. I say that because I think people can think, oh, guy, you know, if you work at the ready, they become masters of this. You know, they don't have these issues. They just naturally do this all day long. That's bullshit. Absolutely. At least it is in my life. There's always an edge where I'm scared to be authentic and reveal. <laughs> of course. Of course. Oh, for
2: sure. Yeah. I mean, we could go on for for hours. We could go for a real ratings bump, but Rodney, in a future episode, <laughs> if we want to get into it with Jim.
1: <laughs> if Jim is willing. I think that would be very interesting. That yeah. Would be super fun. I I do when you used the working relationship as an example, it brought up a question for me, which is Let's say there is something that comes to mind at least three times. Like, what is the balance in your mind between revealing that because of the importance of that? And is there a point at which it becomes just exhausting for the counterparty that you're continuously (laughs) revealing
0: <laughs> it's, uh, it sounds like you're making a
1: statement from your own
0: experience. <laughs> I,
1: I think I here, here's why I I yeah. am for sure, yeah. and I and part of why is because I I I am not particularly conflict avoidant as as a person, and I just never have been, and I've gotten a lot of feedback in my life about my directness. Some of which is valuable, and some of it or positive, and some of which is not. It's all valuable, and <laughs> So I think my own sort of handbrake on that can be like just because I am comfortable bringing this up and this and this other thing and another thing doesn't necessarily mean that that is the orientation of others. And so um I don't know it's just a, a thing that I that popped into my mind as you were speaking.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great observation. Oh, there're two things. You know, we're not we're not, we're not looking here to have every random passing thought revealed. We're not looking for some sort of you know experience like that. That's uh-huh. not what we're looking for here. What we're actually talking about is withholds. Mm. Withholds, you can feel them in your body. You can feel it. If I said, just pick somebody in your life, Rodney, who's meaningful to you, and I'd say, do you have any withholds from that person?
4: Mm -hmm.
0: Anything you have thought three or more times you haven't shared that if you shared it, you'd be afraid that and then fill in the blank. Mm. Is there anything you've done or not done, said or not said, thought or not thought, felt or not felt that you're with Holding, And again, we could go into this, but most people, when you try that on, they know what a withhold feels like.
1: Oh, yeah. I can think, as you were talking, I can think of at least one example of every person I'm close with.
0: Beautiful. There you go. And by the way, if I were coaching you, I'd say, great, that's natural and normal. So first of all, can you just take a breath of acceptance to the part of you that withholds? Because she is just trying to keep you safe. So sure. thank goodness for withholding. <laughs> Really, it just is our best strategy to stay safe in a relationship. Okay, now, if we're going to start to reveal our withholds, a couple of things need to be in place. And these are really big concepts. So we'll touch on them. But they take time to really grok and develop. Mm -hmm. The first thing we say is that all of your reveals to another person, the way we say it often is we're teaching teams how to create feedback rich environments. The first thing you want to learn is your feedback is about you, not about the other person. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: Now, that's really important. So let's say I say uh, to you, Rodney, just based on what you just said, let's say I say, um, Rodney, you can be a real bulldozer in that meeting we have on Tuesday afternoon.
1: Great example. I'd like to give
0: you some feedback. Okay, Mm -hmm. good. Well, if that's all that happens, I just say, Rodney, my assessment of you is that you can be a bulldozer
3: Mm -hmm.
0: at that point in time. If the whole thing stops there, who do we know something about? Do we know anything about Rodney? Mm. The answer is no.
1: We know Jim's perception of Rodney. That's
0: exactly (laughs) right. The person we know about is Jim. Sure. Sure we know how Jim perceives the world. We know how Jim filters the world. We know what Jim pays attention to. Here's a big one. We know what Jim has an aversion to.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: And what you discover is, uh, you know, in the 12-step program, they have that great motto, you spot it, you got it. Right. Right. I love that. I think it's really true. So let's say we're in that Tuesday meeting. And after a while, I say, Rodney, my assessment of you is that you can be a bulldozer. Okay. Now, if I were really practicing consciousness and really doing my deep work, here's the way I'd say it. I'm going to contort the language for a minute just to tell you what's really going on. I would say, Rodney, the part of you, the part of me, me, Jim, that I see in you that I have an aversion to is my bulldozer part. Now I'll say that again, the part of me that I project onto you that I have an aversion to in me and in the world is my bulldozer part. Now what you'll discover is my bulldozer part, Jim's bulldozer part is either something I'm unwilling to see about myself Mm. because it'd be wild if on Tuesday I said, "Roddy, you know, you can really bulldoze that meeting. And Aaron says, Hey, Jim, just to be clear, the last three weeks, my experience is you've been the one bulldozing the meeting. Mm-hmm, and let's sure. say that a videotape would show something like that. Well, what's true is I've x that part out of me. I haven't known it, accepted it, loved it, worked with it. So I project it onto Rodney. Or the other thing that often happens is I've disowned the value of my own bulldozer. Because we think that all these parts have great value. I guarantee you, if you have a bulldozer part, there's a time and a place that I and we as your teammates want you to be a bulldozer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I've disowned it me. So I, so first thing you want to know about feedback, it's all about me.
3: Mm-hmm. The
0: sec- it's all about the win- The second thing you want, if you want to create a feedback rich environment, you want to get people holding their stories lightly.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: So if I'm triggered and reactive, if I'm pissed off at you and I say, Rodney, you're a bulldozer. That's not a lightly held story. That's an opinion that's, you know, like rigid. Sure. Whereas, Rodney, sometimes when I see these things, facts, I make up the story that you can be a bulldozer. And by the way, I have a bulldozer part of me. So I just want to offer that to you
4: Mm -hmm.
0: for two reasons. One, so you can know me. And two, so that if my feedback is useful to you, you could use it. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: Well, when we teach people how to give feedback that way, knowing that it's about them holding their stories lightly, offering it loosely, all of a sudden cultures become more feedback rich. It doesn't mean there isn't fear and it doesn't mean there isn't contraction, but it's a totally different relationship to feedback.
2: Something I've heard you say, Jim, that really stuck to my ribs was this idea of receiving feedback from the perspective of what about this might be true, or in what way is this true? <laughs> as opposed to is you know being above or below the line about is it right or wrong, et cetera. Can you expound on that just a tiny bit?
0: Yeah, I think it's a game changer. I really do. And it's it's one of the decisions you make if you're going to continue to grow and expand in consciousness. And being a conscious leader, unconscious people or triggered, reactive people, when they are given feedback, especially feedback they don't like, one of the ways they defend against the feedback is they start asking the question, "Is it true?"
4: Mm-hmm. Right. It's
0: one of, we say to people, "You're going to be a more transformational leader if you have fewer feedback filters." A feedback filter is what you need to be, do, or have in order for me to trust your feedback. Mm -hmm. This one, this is a great one to do with people. So we say to people, in order for you to be open to somebody's feedback, what has to be true about you and them? Well, you hear stuff like, they need to know more about the subject than I do. They need to be a subject matter expert. They need to have my best interests in mind. They need to say it in a way and at a time that I can hear it. You know, they, right.
4: they, right. they just put on, on the
2: emphasis
1: on. on someone else to do. The or, perfect or, list. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, you know, you get that perfect list out. What you're going to basically do is cut yourself off from all feedback because it's going to be so rare that anybody meets all those criteria. This is why there's so little feedback. One of the reasons so little feedback in organizations. Mm-hmm. Now, if I go above the line, I start changing the game. And now I go, when you give me feedback, the first question I'm gonna ask is not, is it true? I'm gonna ask, how is it true? Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it is true, but my orientation is going to be an orientation of curiosity and learning. Hmm, let me think about that. How is it (laughs) true that? And I might say, God, you guys, I'm a little blind. I can't see it right now. Could you give me some support in helping me find out about how it's true? Not from a prove it, I don't believe you, but from a place of I really want to see myself more accurately. Mm -hmm. I want world-class self-awareness. And there are only three ways you can grow in self-awareness. And one of them is to create a feedback-rich environment where people are revealing their thoughts, judgments, and opinions about you. Well, when they do The question is, how is it true? And by the way, I tell managers and executives all the time, you want to change how you're perceived in the organization, just start saying to people, we have a specific way to ask for feedback, start asking for feedback. And then when you get it, in the presence of people say, thank you very much. Let me tell you a couple of ways that I can see that what you're saying is true. Mm. Or thank you very much. Right now. I can't see how it's true, but I'm going to think about it for the next 24 hours, and I'll get back to you about how your feedback is true about me. That's a game changer. That changes cultures.
1: That's awesome. I love that. (laughs) I'm just thinking about where. Well, Jim, let me just ask you, you've know, you done a lot of these. (gasps) Is there anything that we have not gotten to that would be a real miss if we missed it?
0: Well, the reason I often go with candor is because it's such a live wire and Mm -hmm. so obvious. I think another one that's more subtle that is profoundly important is creating environments at work where people can feel their feelings. I think repressing and suppressing, denying and not dealing with our feelings is the cause of all kinds of suffering and at every level, physical suffering, relational suffering, but it's also the cause of lots of rework. Because I couldn't be authentically with my fear, when you brought up something that we were going to do, and I couldn't reveal that to you or chose not to, then we go ahead and move forward, only to discover that it was an error in judgment to move forward. And had I been Able and willing to feel my feeling and reveal it, fear might have invited us to learn something, to pay attention to something before Mm. we moved ahead. Anger the same way, and sadness, the three big ones. So I think lack of being with feelings is a big missing element in teams.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, how many environments have any of us been in that's just like leave your feelings at the door? (laughs) No tears. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I, I wonder, you know, why that one percolates to the top? And what is a specific commitment around feelings at work that you encourage teams to make?
0: Okay. First of all, I want to pick up on what you said. How many of us have ever been in an environment where feeling feelings was welcome? Just think about it. Start with your family of origin. When I work with leaders, you know, we say that there are five core feelings. And I list those five core feelings. And I say, in your family of origin, which of those was it okay to feel? Mm. And which ones couldn't you feel? I've never had anybody who said you could feel all five. Sure. No. So, and you know, as you're growing up, then you go to school, and you get sad. And then You know, if you're in like many environments, people say, don't cry here. Don't be sad. Or somebody says to you, you're scared. I'll give you something to be scared about. And all of a sudden, or, you know, if you were a competitive athlete, how often did a coach say to you, what are you feeling right now? I mean, incredibly rare. It's actually becoming more commonplace. And then we come into workplaces and people say, listen, we're not interested in feelings. We're not (laughs) interested in opinions. We're interested in data.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And performance.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what they're missing in my judgment in the workplace is that there are at least three centers of intelligence. There's the head, IQ. There's the heart, EQ, and that's the emotional space. And then there's the body, BQ, body intelligence, instinct, intuition. Well, we, because most Organizations are led by people, we all have all three, are led by people who have a dominant thinking center, Mm -hmm. then thinking, analyzing, critical thinking becomes the go to way of making decisions. But what gets cut out is the intelligence of the heart and the wisdom of the body. So I think it's this way in the workplace because. It's this way in the culture, it's changing, but it really is this way. And because most of our organizations are still led by people who have a dominant thinking center that gets prioritized over the feeling center or the instinctual center. I think what's coming is a whole new paradigm where when we come to make a decision, and I'll oversimplify, it'll be something like this. Okay, what is the data? What are the analytics? What is the thinking process that's going on here? Great. We're going to get all that out in the room. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to say, okay, let's shift to EQ. What is anybody feeling about this decision? Is there any sadness? Is there any anger? Is there any fear? Is there creative energy? Is there joy? And then we double click on those because in each of those feeling states, there is information. I say to people, the heart is just another data set to my hard-edged data walks. (laughs) It's just another data set. If you're going to make good decisions, you want all your data sets. So if somebody says, I feel scared, okay? Fear is an invitation to pay attention, to look around, to see, is there something we're not seeing? So then let's pause. Let's see, is there something we need to pay attention to we're not paying attention to? because there's some fear in the room. Anger is the energy that says, this isn't of service, it needs to stop. Is there something that needs to be stopped before Mm. we move forward? Mm -hmm. So we access the data set of the heart. And then the big one that's coming on is the body. Mm. What are bodies telling us? And the body is a whole source of wisdom. And I just think the future is going to be Uh, world class decision making from all three centers. But Mm -hmm. in order to do that, we have to create environments where it's just common for people to say, hey, you know, when I got the call from the client, and they said they were looking at other vendors, I just want you to know, I felt scared.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: And I had the thought that in some way, I had failed in giving them the necessary information to close the deal. And I noticed I was also scared, Because you, my boss, I was afraid you'd be disappointed in me. Mm -hmm. So I just want to out my emotional context before we talk about what we're going to do about this, because my emotional context is coloring what's going on here. Or before we do this reduction in force, I just want you to know I feel really sad. I've worked with some of these people since the company began. And I understand intellectually the case to be made to, you know, trim our forces But I just want to feel my sadness a little bit. Mm -hmm. I say we'll know that this is happening when there are boxes of Kleenexes in all of our conference
3: rooms.
0: (laughs) Because tears are really important in leaders. Leaders who can't cry can't be trusted.
1: Wow. Whoa. That's a T-shirt. That's a tweet. Yeah.
2: If
0: you can't feel your broken heart you'll never connect to other people's hearts deeply. Mm -hmm. You know, a great illustration of this is Patton in the movie. Remember, here he is this fabulous, obviously a little neurotic uh, general. But, you know, the climax of the movie is when he goes to the hospital to visit that kid who got scared. And Patton could never be with his own fear, so he couldn't be with anybody else's fear. So he reacted in a way that greatly affected his command. So leaders who can't be with their own fear, it's the old day we said leaders can never show their fear because then everybody else will get scared. I think that's utterly crazy.
3: Yeah. In
0: today's environment, it's great if a leader can say, Man, when I look at the you know, the opposing forces coming at us right now, I just want you to know that I have some fear.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: I get scared. So if you're scared you make sense. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what's true about me. I'm going to move into and through my fear. I'm not going to be paralyzed by it. And I want you to be able to have your fear and move into it and through it. And the same is true with sadness. I have a broken heart. You know, we didn't get the amount raised in this last round that we wanted to raise. Okay, well, everybody just straps on, goes out and makes (laughs) do. But there's also time to say, God, I feel sad. When we Mm -hmm. first got together six months ago, and we had this vision, and our technology was 10x, the closest competitors, and we thought the money was going to come pouring in, I had a vision, I had a dream. And that vision isn't going to come true. So I want to grieve it. I want to be sad a little bit so that there can be space for the new vision. Unless we grieve and let go of the old, we're not available to the new. So these are all reasons why we think this emotional center, emotional intelligence, is going to be key to the leadership of the future.
2: I do think that the average person in the boardroom is probably laboring under the assumption that they can't do anything with those feelings or with Mm -hmm. those body sensations it's not as clear how to use them as a verb (laughs) as it is the data says to do it. And so I suggest we do it. Saying I'm scared, what do I do with that? What does it mean to properly use that in the decision? Such a good question.
0: First, all feelings are, emotions, is energy in motion. E hyphen motion, energy in motion. So the first thing you do with a feeling is you feel it. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's no slow your roll. That's right. Now, what that means is the feeling is someplace in the body. So, can you just allow the sensations in the body to be as they are? And what happens, and this is what Joe Bolte Taylor said, you know, the Harvard researcher years ago in Stroke of Insight if you do that, All feelings, the energy, the sensations in the body, tension, pinching, pressure, heat, sweating, all those will go through in less than 90 seconds. So the first action step with a feeling is to allow the feeling to to just flow through the body and release. The reason you do that is if you don't let the body release the feeling, it will distort your cognitive capabilities. Now, there are other reasons to do it too, but if I were talking to a hard-edged analytic thinker, and this would be what behavioral finance is all about. A lot of the behavioral finance traps are the result of not feeling feelings all the way through to completion, and then they become distortions in thinking. Mm. So the first thing you do with the feelings, you feel it all the way through. After it has gone through your body, then you simply ask the question, like of anger, you say, what's going on here that isn't of service to the collective? What needs to be stopped? That's the energy of anger. Anger, stop. And then you just get curious about it. With fear, it's what needs to be paid attention to that we're not fully paying attention to. We're not. You ask a question that brings up the wisdom of the feeling. With sadness, it's what needs to be let go of. We're still holding on to some things from the past. We need to grieve them and let them go. So there are very specific questions that you ask the different emotions so that information arises that allows you to make better, more comprehensive decisions. The same is true of the body. The body has information and you can learn how to decode the information of the body. I just heard recently, I didn't hear this quote, but I just heard somebody say that Bezos said once, when his mind and his body disagree, his body is almost always right. Mm. And again, I don't know whether he said that. I heard it from a reliable source, so he might have. But, (laughs) you know, I like that. So whether he said it or not, I'm going to attribute it to him because that'll give my point of view more leverage.
1: (laughs) (laughs) With some people. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So maybe a place to wind up this very, very fun and super fascinating conversation is to talk a little bit about the org as a whole. So we've been talking for a little bit about how teams can make commitments and about how individuals can be more centered in feeling how they're feeling. How do we help self-awareness and self-acceptance to show up as system awareness and system acceptance?
0: Wow, what a
1: cool, I don't think I've ever been asked that.
0: (laughs) Success. Cool. (laughs) That's beautiful. Well, so here's what I'm gonna do first. You probably know more about that than I do. Mm. What what would you
1: say? Yeah. I, so this will be in my language, not your language, Jim, and then you can help me unpack it. In systems, the tension that we feel in systems or our dissatisfaction with systems is the fuel for evolving them. Mm -hmm. And that is how we do our work in terms of helping systems to become more evolutionary. And what that's predicated on is a sensing, so an understanding and a sensing and a sense-making of what unhelpful patterns or tensions exist. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I think where it falls down, I don't even want to say that, where it gets a little bumpier, is accepting that this is where we are right now Mm -hmm. rather than going right from oh, we felt this tension, barf. What are we going to do to get away from this as quickly as possible into planning, controlling, grippiness, nonsense? Mm. So Mm. that's what I mean is that, to me, in an evolutionary system that feels quite healthy, noticing opportunity, tension, unhelpful patterns, et cetera, accepting that there were likely reasons at the time that those things were created and that they're not necessarily to be managed or avoided, but used as data as an mm. input for evolution is a big shift. And I think is unusual in a systems mm. level. Usually we just see those things as problems to be fixed or avoided.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Whoa. Okay. Well, here's what I'd add. Here's the log I'd draw on that fire is that from our perspective, whether it's individual in the team or in the whole system, it's very difficult to shift what we can't or won't accept. Mm. And the reason is that we have an oppositional relationship to things that we won't accept. We're in a tension with it. We're not really flexible and free until acceptance shows up. So if I go back to the individual level, I've said to many, many people over the years, until you can accept your body being just the way it is, Mm -hmm. it'll be very difficult to create long-term lasting shift.
4: Mm -hmm. And
0: I think the data shows this, you know, there's still the number one category of book sales is self-help and the number one category (laughs) there is diet. So people are doing all these things, but they haven't started with wow, can I just give my current body a breath of acceptance for being just the way it is. That's no easy thing to do Mm
3: -hmm. because
0: it is the way it is for all kinds of good, natural, normal reasons. Well, the same would be true in a system. We did these things up to this point for good, natural, normal reasons. Before we start to explore and play with a new possibility for being with this as a system, let's accept ourselves for co-creating this just the way it is. Mm. And by the way, this acceptance doesn't need to be more than a few seconds of acknowledging and breathing, Mm -hmm. of honoring. And then we can let the old go (laughs) and we can be flexible and adaptive to the new. So that's what I would add to your toss, Rodney, is I think if there isn't acceptance, lasting permanent shifts are very difficult. Just
2: look at that inbox, take it in, look <laughs> at that calendar. Yes. take it in.
0: Yes. I love that actually.
2: Yeah, I mean
0: <laughs> physically do that because it serves you in some way. So before we come up with the new, let's just accept ourselves for having created what we had.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm glad you said created because I do like the the technique that you offer around looking at the recipe. Yeah, you know this is I've I've created. I have responsibility for this this world I'm experiencing, and what is the recipe that we as an organization have kind of cooked together? And just yeah, just being with that, I really I would always appreciate that mm. activity. Yeah, me too.
0: <laughs> I do it all. I did it yesterday. In a particular <laughs> situation in my life I thought, "Okay, if I'm in creator, then I have at least co-created this situation." So what's the recipe? Yep. How, How have would I teach I someone
2: created else? It? Yep. <laughs> there's nowhere to hide in that, which is why I like it yeah, cuz, you know, too. we can all be good at hiding. Speaking of hiding, we need to draw things to a close so that we can all go back to wherever we came from, and hopefully we won't be hiding there, but we won't be in this same room together anymore. Jim, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work with and around CLG?
0: Yeah, everything is on our website, which is .is, conscious.is, conscious.is, and uh, I really encourage people to go there. We open source virtually all of our materials. And so you can click on by commitments and they'll give you meditations to do, videos to watch, tools and tricks. So it's full of good stuff. And that's also the portal through which they can connect with any of us just at hello at conscious.is. They can get to me.
1: Amazing. I really encourage our listeners to do that. I've learned so much just from what CLG puts into the world. Jim, thank you so much for joining us and being so generous with your time today.
0: You're so welcome. I I got up a while ago, stopped sitting just to pace because I was having so much fun. I had to get the energy moving through my body. It's just such a blast to riff together you know, and to see what comes out. So thank
2: you. Absolutely. Maybe there's a a part two in the works someday, some month. (laughs) A quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making the three of us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something or feel something.